Hiring? With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash 247sports. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 247sports. Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. Back here on the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast, pleased to welcome SEC on CBS lead analyst Gary Danielson. Um, Gary, you have returned from Nashville, and we are fresh off of what we uh, what we saw in the, in the Rocket Mortgage postgame show. Um, a really impressive moment for a talented football team that when it flips the switch and when Alabama has its attention raised, um, it's they're just, like you said before, they're playing a different game. Well, it was usually I'd say it's a little bit of everything, but in this case I think it was a lot of bit of everything. <laughs> and, you know, Alabama had not played up to their potential. You know, and it's hard to get a team up every week. And as much as the coaches might publicly go up there and speak with the press about, you know, where the team is and we got to play hard and we have to, it's one game at a time and we have to get our peak every week. It really secretly behind closed doors, they know they can only get their team up really high to a high level, three, four, five times a year max. And the other times, they just have to go out there and win with their B game. That's just the way it is. Um, I kind of jokingly said at one point in the press conference that, you know, Nick Saban couldn't have dreamt up a better scenario than to have Vanderbilt beat Kansas State and then call out his team and have CBS pick up the game at 3.30. It could have been an 11 o'clock in the morning game. Mm-hmm. It could have been a 9 o'clock at night game. It could have been Vanderbilt just you know, playing dead and you know, honoring Alabama as the greatest team, and his team might have slept walk again. But uh, he told us Friday night they had their best week of practice, and he expected them to play their best game of the season. And then Vanderbilt just wasn't ready for that. And ironically you know, three of their best plays early in the game all went against them. A, a, a perfectly thrown pass that would have been a 25-yard, 30-yard gain gets intercepted. A, a, a screen pass that's going to pick up 15, 20 yards, the, the running back falls down when he could have caught the ball. And then on the best defensive play of the game for them, they blow up a screen pass and it bounces off a helmet or whatever and goes in for a first down. They just got demoralized. So, a lot of everything, but you're you're not going to beat Alabama if if you don't bring a lot of talent. Number one, and then all the other stuff. You know, you you better be able to match up on the offensive defensive line. And then we're, from now on, we'll start talking about whether the no huddle or the running quarterback or a tall receiver or turnovers. Because if you can't match up on the offensive defensive line, forget it. No chance. You know. Gary, when we talked last week, I, I feel like I kind of sensed from you that you didn't expect this to be much of a game. I think you you right. recognized the mismatch here, but I think we all sort of hoped Vanderbilt was was you know they beat a top twenty five team. I think we had hoped it would be a, right. a, a decent matchup. Um, 
coming out of that game, and I know, as you mentioned, it was sort of a perfect storm for Bama to get right. Do you come away thinking Bama is maybe better than you expected or, or Vanderbilt is worse than you expected, or is it just sort of the, this confluence of, of all these things that allowed a, a 59 nothing win? Yeah, I think the, the you know everything overlapped and allowed it to get to that level. I was a little disappointed in, in Vanderbilt, to tell you the truth. Um, when you have 17 of 22 starters have played three years of football in the SEC, you know, Alabama's good, but, you know, they, they don't have capes on. And yeah. I, I thought Vanderbilt played a very poor football game. I, I really do. And I thought they lost um, a, a lot of confidence in themselves, started feeling sorry for themselves, and, and Alabama was having none of it. <clears throat> they were running, you know, back in the day, and I've seen this, back in the day when Oklahoma and Texas used to run the wishbone or Ohio State and Michigan used to just run that, you know, isolation play and embarrass you where, you you know, you just got, you know, whipped so bad. That's what it looked like. So uh, I'll say I was a little disappointed in Vanderbilt, number one, but I'm uh, delightfully surprised to say that I think Alabama is going back to the way they were back in 11, 12, 13, 14. And, and that's interesting to say because, you know, they were pretty successful in 15, 16 or 14, 15 and 16, but they've kind of morphed under Lane Kiffin into being more of a finesse zone blocking team. They have definitely made the commitment of going back and running the power offense. They're pulling their guards. They're leading fullbacks and H backs. Um, They're throwing slant passes. They're asking their quarterbacks and tight ends and, and H backs to do more. And I think it all comes down to that championship game where, you know, they're in a game where their defense is getting, plays piled up on them in the middle of the third quarter and Nick goes over to Sarkeesian and I'm just making this up. I don't know for sure. And go, give me two or three first downs. I got to take some clock off here. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't string together more than three or four plays. And I think, you know, as that game ended in the next week, as he went through and studied what he wanted them to be, he did not want them to be that finesse football team ever again. Well, in addition to that perfect storm, you know, one of the reasons it got so ugly was second half when Bama put in their backups. They were they were yeah. just as big of a mismatch. T- tell me where the hype meter should be right now on Tua Tagovailoa. I mean, he he was he was pretty impressive in off the charts. Off, off the charts. I, I I I'll I'll tell you this, Tua Tagovailoa, he could go the next these three years and never be a starter, and he's going to get drafted in the NFL. <laughs> He's that good. He's that good. He's got a gift for throwing the ball. He'll mature into a you know, 25, 26-year-old man that sees angles and you know, elevation of the ball and arcs and the field and blitzes that you can't teach. That stuff's impossible to teach. And uh, he's already got a good enough arm. It's just going to get better. And, uh, you know, Jalen Hurts is a wonderful football player and a, and a really valuable quarterback for college football. But, you know, it's, it's a different skill set for the NFL. And Jalen might get there. You know, he's going to get good coaching from Brian Dable the next couple of years. But, you know, these two guys m- m- both might leave the same year, <laughs> as funny <laughs> as that sounds. I mean, that could happen. Uh, you know, I don't think it's ever happened before, but um, not just him. You know how I was trying to find the, the analogy, and I thought of it. We we talked about it in a uh, a commercial, but I, I really didn't want to use it on TV. But you know how when you uh, 
a, a, like dip a fish or animal into the water and those pariahs start attacking it and until the there's just the bone left and right. and, and they're they're like a, a school that are all going so fast because they know if they don't get there and get their bite it's going to be gone <laughs> that that's what Alabama's team look like I want the ball and I want to bite or I want to make a tackle or I want to get on the field because if I don't the other guy's going to get out there and take the bite that's how much talent they have in the wings ready to show what they have mm. Before we get to Georgia and Tennessee, which is the SEC on CBS Game of the Week this Saturday from Knoxville, of course, you can see Gary Danielson, Brad Nessler, Ali LaForce on CBS, CBSSports.com, and of course, CBS streaming devices. Spinning this forward for Vanderbilt, now they go into the swamp to play a Florida team, which has won in inexplicable ways, including throwing to one of the most talented players on the field, uh, wide open for game-winning scores. As Florida is coming out of that Kentucky win, Vanderbilt coming off this demoralizing loss, you know, where do you see this, that SEC East tilt, uh, one where you've got a lot of teams, Florida in particular, who would like to be uh, considered a contender with the Georgia Bulldogs? Well, it, it appears to me that it, it, you know, and I know we'll get there, you know, they all have to hope that Tennessee finds a stumble right here, you know, right. because, you know, their, their schedules looking pretty darn good for them. Uh, you know, they have a bye before the game against Florida and Jacksonville. They look like they have a found that defensive niche that Kirby smart brought there. Their, their two running backs are healthy for Georgia. So, you know, if you look around, you just go, Oh man, it, I mean, Florida could have a zero in the win column, you know, if they weren't fortunate. I don't want to use the word lucky, but fortunate. And now they're going to be playing their third quarterback in Luke Del Rio that, you know, I'll be honest, they didn't want to play him. They they knew that Luke probably could run this team this year better than Felipe Franks or Malik Zaire, but they were kind of moving towards the future. They they thought, you know, let's can we win eight, nine, ten games with Felipe Franks this year, and then just go on to the future. I don't think they envision going to the to the past with a fifth year graduate quarterback, but that's what it looks like they're going to go to do. So I, I don't know. I just you know look at this Florida team. They can't be as good on defense as they were a year ago, and and they still have you know after Vanderbilt. You know, they still have LSU, the game we, we have chosen, and, and then Texas A&M, a, a very good offensive team they're going to face. So I, I, I think that, you know, all logic points to the fact that everybody is a step below Alabama, and then after that it's Georgia's the closest, and then everybody else there's a significant step below Georgia, which surprised me because I thought LSU and Florida at the beginning of the year would be pretty much close to Georgia, but it looks like they've separated themselves. Luke Del Rio, uh, five and one as a starter, but just eight touchdowns, eight interceptions. Gary, I I look at him and I think he's just fine. And yes. just yes. fine is not an upgrade or an improvement. Is this? Do you think that they'll end up riding with uh, the experienced player for the rest of the season, or are we going to see? Uh, well, Felipe Franks maybe play his way back into it before the end of the regular season. You know, I, I and I don't know this, obviously. This is just conjecture on my part. I, I, I really think that um, when Felipe Franks went into that game at Kentucky, uh, Jim McElwain expected him to show progress, that he had hit that big pass. You know, he had stumbled through that 
that that game against Tennessee, but then he pulled it out. And I think that logic was, okay, now that's going to get him over the hump. He'll settle down and, and he'll get there, but that didn't happen. And um, I, I'm still a little bit surprised that, you know, they go to Luke only because if Luke stumbles now, what do you do? <laughs> you know, and, and if Luke does well, you're back into the same mess at the end of the year as you ended up 2016 with you got to go into spring camp you got a you know a a five-star coming in at quarterback who's going to get the snaps who's going to be the fall quarterback who gets the first stop start so I thought Florida after three years would be thinking they are further along than to trying to solve or save a season with a fifth year double transfer quarterback that used to walk on at Alabama is this a mistake to to try to play these musical chairs with three quarterbacks because it seems like these guys are all just in different ways kind of about the same and wouldn't is there yeah in your Um, experience watching is there a benefit to just picking one and just riding it out some some peaks and valleys and and rolling or 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 is this is this something that you know may end up working out I guess right well I think one of the reasons that uh Jim McElrain brought in Malik Zare is because he wasn't even sure Luke Del Rio was going to come back for his fifth or sixth year, whatever it is. And, and he might be caught shorthanded without a backup quarterback again. And we've seen what happened to Florida when that happened before, somebody gets nicked and you don't have anybody to play. So then when Luke came back, he said, okay, he's a perfect backup. I'll let Malik Zare and, and Felipe Franks fight it out. And uh, what he found out is, that Malik's style of offense is so different for him to be successful than Felipe's. You know, what do I do? I don't have that much practice time. So it became natural that Luke became the backup. And then as Felipe continued to struggle, he, heck, I can't, you know, I can't invest any more time into this. I've got, even though we're winning games, I got the whole Florida fan base breathing down our necks. And, and right now I got to take the safe guy and put Luke Del Rio in. The problem with Luke is, I don't know, if, you know, I was like this at the end of my NFL career. I, I could come in and I could win games, and I was a very valuable backup. But I, I couldn't play three, four, five games in a row. I couldn't take the pounding, and, and I'm just wondering if that's what might happen with Luke Del Rio. Well, on to, to the game you're covering this week um, in, in Knoxville. And, look, you, you've seen – Tennessee once already yeah. this year up close you've I don't know if you had a chance to watch the UMass game yet or not but parts look, of it <laughs> not much I mean, to really hang your right. head I mean UMass played three of the worst teams in college football before playing Tennessee and yep. the closest game of the four was the Tennessee game what what in the world is going on I mean I, I watch it and Tennessee seem that they don't seem to be terrible in any one spot the quarterback seems to be okay what, what is missing at Tennessee, that, as far as you can tell? Well, I think there, um, it's an odd time to go through a transition. But I, I think with when Josh Dobbs left, uh, and they also decided to hand the offense to Larry Scott, I think the change of their offensive philosophy was so different of what they're trying to do this year compared to the offense they ran a year ago with Josh Dobbs that everybody's just – kind of like floundering as to who who are we what do we do they they haven't practiced plays like this for three and a half years and uh you know the the zone read is gone they they just don't look like the same team and 
you know, that wasn't that successful before either. This is like, you know, when, at, when Butch first got there, if he would have instituted the offense that he had now, maybe after three years of recruiting to that offense, they would be ready for it. But, but they just look like no one's at sync. Uh, you know, they got, uh, their receivers are used to a different type of passing tree than what they're using now. Um, and then on top of all that, I think Butch's press conference yesterday where he talked about the negativity of the press, I think that just said volumes. That, And I don't, I'm not sure that if I was a Tennessee fan, I would have loved to have heard that from my head coach, that the negative press is bothering our team. And he, and he was basically asking the people that follow the team to ease up on us, that we can't take it. Mm. And, and uh, you know, he didn't say it in all don't, that many words, but it was, he did say that the negativity of the press is affecting how well we play. And I, and I thought that was a, a, a tough admission. I mean, it is the SEC. And it, it, you know, when you get one of these SEC jobs, when you get hired to coach at Tennessee or Arkansas or Texas A&M or Florida or Auburn or Georgia, ask Mark Rick what the expectations are for coaching at one of those big jobs in the SEC. What Mark win nine or 10 games and he got let go. Yeah. So SEC um, championships, 17 seasons of mostly winning nine or 10 games and always in the thick of it. And he got let go. And, and, and I just think that's what it was. I would have rather had, you know, Butch stand up and either get mad and say, I'm done talking to you guys. Ask your questions. I've been too nice to you from now. If you want it to be adversarial, let's be adversary. You know, give them a little of, uh, you know, Harbaugh. Um, But but it seemed to me that, you know, he can sense from his team, and it seems to me that it's bothering him. And for whatever reason, this Tennessee team uh, is is really hurting it. And I, I also think another thing, losing Devon Kirkland and Jawan Jennings, they're two leaders. They, they really needed him this year in the transition from, you know, where they were a year ago, no Barnett, you know, no Dobbs. You couldn't have picked out on the team two worse guys to lose than Jawan Jennings and Devin Kirkland. They're two big leaders. The team that they're lining up against on Saturday coming into town, the Georgia Bulldogs, right. just uh, a, a phenomenal defensive front. They do it. They did a great job against Nick Fitzgerald in Mississippi State, and then yep. uh, a ground game that allows the freshman Jake Fromm to just be efficient. You know, only twelve yep. pass attempts, but he got nine of them. Is there is there anything in Georgia that has uh, surprised you, or that you're picking apart or looking at nope. because they just they look like they've got it all rolling right now? Nope, a little bit surprised that it's not Jacob Eason that's doing it. Obviously, I mean, it, you know, it's anytime a true freshman quarterback can do that. But, but, but listen, Kirby, you know, uh, tipped his hand when he took the job. Okay, well, look who he went and hired. He went and hired Jim Cheney and Sam Pittman. The two guys who created that offense at Arkansas, remember those first two years when Bielman went there and they rammed the ball between the tackles Mm -hmm. and said, we're going to serve notice that we're going to be a physical football team. He brought in Mel Tucker and, of course, Kirby himself running the defense and saying, we're going to be, you know, Alabama-esque. In fact, I'm looking at their, their depth chart here. They even named their defenders on their depth chart exactly the same way Alabama does with the Jack linebacker and the star back and the money back. So they're recreating what they know will work. And here, 
going back to Mark Rick, um, I thought last year's Georgia team was one of the least talented teams I had ever seen since I'd been in this conference. Um, you know, it was a perfect storm, a new coach, a, a talented, a talented team that had, you know, sent a few guys to the NFL and then maybe missed on a few guys at Georgia. And then Nick Chubb coming off an injury, playing with a true freshman quarterback. So that, that was really a transition year, much like the transition year Nick Saban had at Alabama when he w- lost to what Louisiana Lafayette or somebody like that his first year. ULM. So I, yeah, yeah, something like that. So, so I wasn't surprised that it took a year because Georgia always had talent. It, Mark Rick wasn't fired because he didn't win uh, enough games. He didn't. He got fired because he didn't win the right games. And the fact that he had talent that so I knew Georgia was going to come back, and they're playing a style of football exactly the way Alabama plays it, exactly the way Michigan plays it, uh, exactly the way USC plays it. They're going to physically challenge you at the line of scrimmage. So um, Tennessee better buckle up. You know, I mean, this is this may be a a program saving game for Tennessee. And Georgia looks at the schedule. Maybe Kirby doesn't say this publicly and goes, "If we can get this one, dot dot dot." You know, it's funny the way you describe Tennessee's offense and the sort of how they're out of sync. That that's kind of the exact opposite in Georgia. They're just they're sort of in yep. sync, and um, and they played so well, and. They're coming into this game after a big win, a uh, uh, night game against hot Mississippi State team. Tennessee, disappointing win against UMass. Is there? Do you feel like Georgia's at this point, from from your experience, are they are they mentally tough enough to step into this setting? Are they going to be prepared mentally to to not have a drop off? Is this? Is, I guess what I'm asking is this a vulnerable spot at all for them? I don't think so, uh, yeah. because they lost the last two years to Tennessee. You know, yeah. I, I they had the Hail Mary a year ago. Uh, I I think what Kirby brings to the table is, you know, we we did this at Alabama for seven years. You know, there are no weekends off here. You know, everybody, if you want to be, if you want to get to Atlanta and have the right to play an Alabama team that is clearly talented, and you want to measure up, you got to do it every week. You know, and right now we're going to have a target on our back. No one says it's going to be easy. You know, Auburn has a legitimate defense. They should get better on offense. You know, LSU, they're not going to go away. They've got a good, talented football team. So Florida, you know, maybe this isn't the best Florida team, but you know they'll show up in Jacksonville. So I think Kirby says Tennessee is resting their whole 2017 season on beating us. We're not going to sneak up on them. We're going to see how good we really are this week. You so throughout the go ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say you mentioned that uh, that Auburn team. Now they take on Mississippi State. They're starting right. to get healthy at the running back position. Is is this a, a time where Auburn can maybe uh, rewrite the story of being able to insert itself as a team that is right there below Alabama, an Auburn team that will get to see both Georgia and Alabama at home in late November. Correct. And, and, and they still are traveled to LSU, I believe, some mid-October, something like that, to go to LSU too. So they know they're going to be playing some physical teams. My question at the beginning of the year, the first time we, we, I was asked about Auburn, was could they run the ball without a running quarterback? Gus Malzahn has never done it. 
He's never been able to do it. He's always needed a Nick Marshall or, a, a, you know, Cam Newton. He needed a guy to balance out his offense. Slowly but surely, with Petway, they may be establishing enough run, run options to give Jarrett Stidham the opportunity to throw the ball. They weren't there early, but they also held Clemson pretty nice with that defense. What, 14 points in that game, if yep. I remember correctly? Just two touchdown drives. Pretty much other than That's that, right. Clemson's offense was held to three and out or five and out. I think Auburn will improve the most as the season goes on in, the, in this conference. And if they can steal a couple more victories – that's going to be a real measure. You know, they will be ready to play Alabama at the end. So I, I think they'll get nothing but better. And I, I, and I think they may be on a par with Georgia and Florida as, you know, the second tier behind Alabama in defense. Gary, should we anticipate any funny business in Tuscaloosa this weekend? Ole Miss is, has a history of giving Bama some issues right. with the with the passing attack and the mobile quarterback and – they, they still have that, uh, I guess, but maybe not a lot else. Do you have any, well, <laughs> any qualms about what's going to happen there this weekend? Well, you never know. I mean, with a hot yeah. quarterback and, and, you know, they have some uh, good-sized receivers, you never know. But, but I, I thought when Ole Miss played them before, they, some of their uh, studs at defensive and offensive line was able to at least give the offense a chance. I don't know watching them – play against Cal when Cal was just rushing three and one linebacker from different sides of the, of the formation and, and getting shots on uh, uh, Peterson the whole time, uh, Shea Peters, Patterson the whole time. You know, I, I question just how far along they are offensively to handle this Alabama team. Uh, a little hidden note about this game. Also Dan Warner, the longtime offensive coordinator right. for Ole Miss is at Alabama as an, an analyst, and I'm, uh-huh. and I'm sure he's there and, and a val- valuable analyst this week at Alabama. Goodness, that's a great point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all the that's that's uh, that's some some pretty classic Nick Saban, right? Find the find yeah. find who's well. He has a lot of respect for Dan Warner. Dan Dan is a you know legitimate you know top twenty coordinator in college football. He's out of work. He brings him in. He brought him in for, I think, two reasons. One, to continue to pick his brain of how the hurry-up offenses, spread offenses work for defensive purposes, and also to help Brian Dable. Remember, Brian's a good, solid coach in the NFL, but now he can talk to Dan and talk about the differences of college ball, how to use the no huddle, how to use the signage, how to call plays, how to how to maybe take advantage of Jalen Hurts a little bit more. So it was a natural addition to his staff. And it also places him in a good spot if, you know, Brian gets a head coaching job at the end of this year and he can move Dan right into that coordinator spot. He likes to have his future coordinator have some experience with the team. Mm, and then that future coordinator can uh, take over the 2018 and 2019 playoff contenders, which were on the field in the second half against Vanderbilt. <laughs> and they were pretty good, weren't they? They were pretty good. Those three, those three wide receivers and, and that quarterback and, and that running back, and, and there were three plays in a row where all three of the, uh, all five of the true freshmen were involved in the plays. And, and it didn't look like much of a drop-off. It was really something to see. Something else. He is Gary Danielson. Make sure that you tune in to Georgia at Tennessee. It is the SEC on CBS Game of the Week. You can get it on CBS. You can watch it on CBSSports.com, all CBS mobile devices. Gary, thanks so much. We'll be watching. 
All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. We're getting into specifics. Game breakdown. Specifics. Game breakdown. If they played on a neutral field, you would take them. Breaking down the game. Game breakdowns don't happen, and they're especially not done well unless you've got a good team in place. And if you are a business owner or an employer who's looking to hire a business of any size, then you need to put your team together with ZipRecruiter. We've got a very special offer for listeners of the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast where you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7 Sports. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click, and 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site within one day. See, in fact, you don't have to find the candidates. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. You just post your jobs on ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash 24-7-sports. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 247sports. One more time, try it for free today. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 247sports. The magic bullet they now have in their holster, which they will apply. Nick Saban and Jim Harbaugh make a combined $20 million this season. Those two guys alone will make $13 million more than the entire Mac. Bring in the Dodd father back, uh, Dennis. The college sports world got thrown, uh, just turned on its head and shaken by the ankles for all of its money. <laughs> uh, this is this. We we were just you know speaking about this for a little bit as we record here on Wednesday morning. But the, the it's not college football, but I, I think that this is relevant to all college sports fans. So I want to take a minute before we jump into some of the big college football headlines, including. Dennis, you're stirring the realignment pot again, but we will get to that uh, in a little bit. What when when the FBI holds a when the Department of Justice holds a press conference and puts up on that screen the flow chart of apparel executives giving money to assistant coaches and assistant coaches uh, then being able to influence players to go to a school affiliated with that, and they had the apparel money going to the school. What, what was your reaction? My reaction was it, ju- it initially was a gave definition to what we all thought we knew was going on for years. I mean, our, our guy Gary Parrish and, and Matt Norlander on the basketball side have alluded to that, that it just gave definition, but but no one could get to it because the media didn't have the sources to do it. Uh, the NCAA didn't have the means to do it, because, look, everybody's clamming up. But the federal government, with, uh, you know, with, I assume, wiretaps, with uh, due process, with subpoena, they got a tip from somewhere or some evidence of wrongdoing and, and went after this big time. So now we have a detailed look at, at how business is done in college basketball, and pe- people will want to say, well, these are only the top players. Yeah, uh, maybe. Uh, but what let, uh, Brian Bowen at, uh, at Louisville, what does uh, what is three quarters of a, a Brian Bowen worth? What is a four-star 
uh, point guard worth on the circuit for a team that really, really needs a point guard. You know, that was a hundred thousand dollars to his family. I think. You know, what, is there somebody worth seventy five thousand dollars? So, I guess my point is, it's it's very pervasive. Uh, it goes on, and, and it's not nearly over. This is going to be a long and probably painful process for college basketball in the NCAA. Well, I guess, you know, in terms of our discussion here, we're a college football podcast. Uh, Are college (laughs) football coaches, do they need to start uh, checking for wires on their phone or or, uh, phone taps? Or do they need to start being careful about what they say? Like, do you think that this is – and and how do you see this trickling over into the football? Oh, I think it absolutely goes on right now in college football. In fact, there there was a separate division set up just to investigate this sort of thing in football, so that it wouldn't wouldn't become like basketball. Now, the the, the biggest firewall in all this for football is you have to go to school three years before you leave. So there isn't that one and done uh, mentality where you're just trying to funnel guys and get them to schools so they can get in and, and get to the pros. Um, but it goes on. It, it, it hit me square in the face where if, if you believe that, you know, a big source of these third party runners and, and street agents and everything is, is seven on seven, which it is. I think it was last year, maybe two years ago, Nike started its own national seven on seven league. At that point, every meaningful, uh, seven on seven national tournament league teams, whatever, were controlled by the three big shoe companies. And the fact that I wrote that hit a nerve at Nike to the point that they were calling my sources saying, hey, did you give this up? Did you give this up? They were really sensitive to that for some reason. But that's true. Uh, You saw Willie Lyles, again, at Oregon a few years ago, was a tip of the iceberg. He was a low-level runner who got paid $25,000 basically to funnel players to Oregon. So I think it absolutely is going on in college football and because because of the three-year firewall, not as much. But also because, Barton, I think you'll agree to this, because of modern offenses, like basketball, you can change a team's fortunes with one or two players. Yeah. The, I, I, you know, I wonder, it seems like this basketball case hinged on a, a financial advisor being compromised and and then he kind of was the key to opening yeah. uh, uh, this Pandora's box. And and maybe it seems like this sort of fell in, in, in the FBI's lap in, in some regard. So I don't know that there's any reason to think maybe that they will target college football in a similar way that they've targeted college basketball. But is that – like I, I just wonder what the FBI's motivation here is in, in sort of cleaning up college athletics – and I wonder if football, from that perspective, is vulnerable of to being targeted as uh, and, and and sort of attempted to be cleaned up. What, yeah, I mean, I th- yeah, I, I, well, I think the big picture is that if you look at this and how it happened, the NCA is basically helpless. They don't have subpoena power. They can't even come close to doing what the Department of Justice and the FBI did. Now, will it scare people? Absolutely, but I think it'll scare them for a while. And then they'll come back. They'll they'll figure out new ways. I mean, it's it's pretty intricate money laundering in in all sports. You know, as you know, you know the money can go through churches. You can right. do it on debit cards. It's, as long as you don't have a paper trail, 
Um, now, yeah, we know they at least got one financial advisor to roll. Uh, who knows who else they have? Well, it was like but, Nevin Shapiro, where the financial advisor exactly. w- got nabbed right. for uh, stealing like two point five million dollars of his client's money, and in cooperation, he's like, "Oh, and by the way, do you guys want to flip college basketball on its head? Here you yeah, go." Right. And uh, and oh, by the way, what what is anybody doing with the financial advisor? You know, it's like these. That's the kind of that's the kind of people that are involved in this because they know in the future they could hang on to these guys when they become pros. I, will, I had it in my story yesterday. I'll tell you a quick story about, about football. I was at a camp this summer, a quarterback camp, where kids, grade schoolers, high schoolers, paid $1,500 for a two-day camp. I, I don't know if that's a lot or not. It seems like a lot to me. But my point was every major college quarterback of substance you can name – was there except Sam Darnold. He was up the road at another camp. Um, Patrick Mahomes was there as a, as a rookie NFL player. Um, it was sponsored by Adidas, not casting aspersions. It just happened to be sponsored by Adidas. Uh, but there are a lot of Adidas executives there. It was very clear. On the sideline was Lee Steinberg. What the heck is Lee Steinberg doing at a camp for grade schoolers and high schoolers other than to maybe troll for clients that are out there in college on the field? I, I just that that amazed me. And it just came clear to me. This is the system. You know, this is the system. There's no reason he should be there. But he is, and I think we all know why he was. Do you think that college foot I I tend to think and I I don't wanna uh make this sound like I'm I'm trying to you know, point fingers or separate yeah. any further. But I think that the college basketball coaches are more beholden to the uh, the, shoe, the shoe companies yeah. because of uh, how much longer, like you mentioned the, the, the launching of the seven-on-seven circuit, but the this is the AAU, the Nike camps, Jordan brand camps, Adidas camps, Under Armour camps. Like they've had more – They've had more years to grow in popularity and in dominance, and uh, I just I think there's so much more incentive in the sport of basketball for there to be a more cozy relationship between apparel company and the the sports, the team, the coach, the assistant coaches, uh, and on and on. Well, this the the seven the seven on seven vertical for football became the AAU of, of college football, if you will, because then at that point, at least at the highest levels. Uh, you had to go – that's where the third-party uh, personality started to develop. The, the coach who knows nothing about football but is sponsored by the shoe company coaching the team, for example. Um, again, not as much as basketball, I don't think, obviously, because the, the incentives are not there because you can't turn around a team as quickly. But for the, for the reasons I gave in the beginning, you know, it's, it's an unparalleled time – in offense uh we've had records set uh there's they're on track set another scoring record this year early on and how do you get good you get fast you get a quarterback you get skilled players score a lot of points entertain keep your job um that's that is a very simple way of summing it up but i i, I just go back to the i think the seven on seven has become the aau of uh, of the football side and and i'd also say this too just from seeing it up close Mm-hmm. On the recruiting side, I think that the seven on seven, in a lot of ways, the grassroots shoe company um, involvement in it has just very recently, over the last couple of years, ramped up. 
So yeah. in some ways, I wonder if this is going to curb some of that or affect some of that because that, that seven on seven is just now it's, it's been around for a while, but it's just now starting to be a central focus of every player's off season rather than right. just sort of an activity that they do. Right. It, it, that has ramped up in the last few years. What, what has been going on for a period of years is the third party, yeah. whether they were a coach of seven on seven or just somebody representing the family. Um, yeah, I th- I agree. I think it will scare those people like roaches back into the corner, but they will eventually come out in the light in a different form. You know, yeah. money, money is money. And at some point it's worth uh, worth it to a lot of people to risk a lot to get it. So they'll 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 get different ways, because I think, again, the overarching message is here that the NCAA can't touch these people because of the way it's structured. Now, they can piggyback off the federal government's investigation and penalize the people we saw yesterday, which they will. But, you know, they, they, they can't, you know, unless you're an enrolled athlete or a coach uh, that's employed there, uh, they had, don't have subpoena power. They can't really do anything about it. And I think that's one of the biggest things here. You- Before we move on, I know, I know we, we can't spend the whole show on this, but I'm just sort of in thinking out loud on this issue who is the who is the victim and and that's not a rhetorical like I, that's right yeah you know, is this is the irs the victim like is just the, the the government not not taxing this money that's that's being handed back and forth like or am i missing something in terms of a, a victim here that's, no that's that's a great point when you start saying you know well these kids should be paid anyway only the current laws make it wrong um yeah uh, i i I think that's probably true, but in this case, okay, let's say they, let's say uh, Brian Bowen got the hundred thousand dollars himself. It was legal by the NCAA rules. There's going to be a shoe company that's bidding on him for two hundred thousand dollars. You know, and my point is, yeah. I don't think there's a number you can pay them, any sensible number you can pay them that can keep this sort of corruption at bay. I just don't. Um, yeah, the victims are well, you know, the victims, I guess, are the are the kids and. And the uh, certainly not the families with their hands out, but if the kids would know what's going on, I guess if you really want to get pure about it and, and the laws that were broken, I guess the victims of the American people. That's what the that's what the FBI will tell you. But um, yeah, right. So much finger wagging. The CD underbelly is now exposed. <laughs> get out of here. You like slam dunks just like the rest of us. All right. Anyway. <laughs> Um, in your inside college football for this week, uh, you you started stirring the conference realignment <laughs> pot. But I like your take here. Okay, and I and at the risk of going uh, to inside baseball, like um, let me see if I can provide some context. This is this has to do with obviously conference realignment was all about TV and TV money, and with the future of television being up in the air and no one really knowing, Dennis. How does Google, Amazon, Facebook, and other streaming services factor into another wave of potential conference realignment? Well, if they want to eventually get into the media rights deal and and you know start bidding on this stuff, then that that's how. And I think what we're seeing now is, as I wrote, all the all the administrators that really matter, the powerful ones, have been to the West Coast to talk to these people at least preliminarily, uh, to feel them out. Now, on the other side of that, I'm told that, look, none of these, none of these internet giants even have production 
uh, capability. You know, they can't go out there and produce a game. They can't wire a stadium and shoot it with cameras. What you're seeing on, um, oh, I think it's it's Amazon Prime starts uh, is doing the Thursday night games on uh, on Amazon Prime. Uh, they're oh. taking somebody else's feed and paying fifty million dollars for it and hoping that that content is viewed on Amazon Prime. Um, so it's it's preliminary, but I think everybody thinks if these guys get involved, then any fear about the money going down after the next round of contracts expire uh, will go away because they see that as an investment or would see that as an investment. I was watching FIU and Rice on Facebook, Dennis. Yep. It was not a high-quality broadcast. I don't mean it was to, not. I mean, yeah. I think it was done by the school. It looked like we had a lot of uh, student, a lot, a lot of media studies students that were out there uh, getting some reps in. So good for them, I guess. But it's well, the, the the Mountain West is doing six games on Facebook, and even their own commissioner is admitting that um, look, it's it's something we're just we're looking at the UC Davis San Diego State game in the first quarter of the internet went out in Qualcomm Stadium. <laughs> So nobody could see the game. Uh, and so it's still, you know, they can still be victim to, to those sorts of things till they figure it out. But you're right. As you uh, as, as you look ahead to this weekend, um, what where, where do you start to see uh, things turning in the SEC? Alabama obviously making an impressive statement with its 59 to nothing win over Vanderbilt. But with uh, Auburn, Mississippi State, with Georgia, Tennessee coming up, how do you see the the next couple of weeks playing out? And will there be anyone that can uh, rise up and make this anything but a countdown to Alabama, yeah. Georgia, and Atlanta? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that. I don't think so. I mean, it's to the point now where it's almost two different leagues. the The SEC East hasn't won an SEC title since 08 with Florida. Is that right? I think that's right. Yep. Um, so we're going on 10 years and the do- a dominating discussion in the league is who's the next best team. Uh, you know, in Alabama's over in its own silo. The next best team, I guess for now is Georgia. You know, I, I think Georgia will win Tennessee, but I could easily see Tennessee manning up and support of Butch Jones in front of a hundred thousand people. And, and getting after a freshman quarterback and winning. And then where are you, you know, in that league? So uh, those are the two. I, I don't see anyone rising up right now as long as, you know, Jake Fromm is the quarterback. And I, I know about the other parts of the team. Obviously, running back defense is very good. Uh, Secondary is getting better. Uh, but I think the only reasonable chance they have of beating Alabama in the SEC champ game is if, if Jacob Eason comes back. Um, and, and plays, uh, you know, is whatever that means. He was only a f- 53% passer as a freshman, but he's probably the best option right now because I think we all agree that when you have these freshman quarterbacks, there's going to be that game where they just absolutely stink. And the game is put on them, and they go 4 of 19, and you go, where did that come from? Well, they're freshmen, and especially in the SEC. That could be this week at Tennessee. The last time we talked to you, I believe, maybe it was a couple a couple of discussions ago, you pointed to Missouri as maybe the place that uh, was was among the most likely to to make a coaching change based yeah. on the way things were going with Barry Odom. Things have not gotten any better since we last talked. But it's funny, across the board in the SEC, 
it's almost like other than Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi State, maybe Vanderbilt, I feel like just about every team has some reason to be disappointed or restless with their coaching situation. Yeah. Um, wh- wh- where do you see the, the – wh- what posses are gaining, st- gaining steam uh, in the SEC? Uh, clearly, Missouri hadn't, hadn't lost any steam, but, but where else do you think are there some serious uh, hot well, seat issues? Well, in, in the SEC, I think basically everybody but Alabama and Mississippi State ought to be on high alert, the coaches at those places. And, and you know, who knows which way the wind's going to blow at, at Florida or Kentucky or – you know, some of these other places just week to week. Yeah. Um, you know, Tennessee is judging from my mentions and stuff I'm getting. They, they can't wait for Dan Mullen to get there. Well, at first, wow. I don't know if he's leaving. Number two, I'm not convinced that Butch Jones is gone. It looks bad now. Um, you know, uh, but that's that's how fans are. They look ahead. Uh, the big picture is I th- not in terms of volume, but in terms of names. In big-time schools, this could be the biggest ever silly season. When you're talking about UCLA, Notre Dame, and I know Notre Dame's looking better now, um, Texas A&M, Arkansas, some of these others, uh, like I said, Florida, whoever, it it could end up being just the names involved and the agents and the players. I'm talking about the the coaching coaches who would be players in this would would be huge. you know, and, and does a does a guy like Justin Fuente make it two and done at Virginia Tech and go to A and M for six million a year? I mean, I think all of that's in play because the money is so big, and it's almost the Bob Stoops factor. You know, how much money do you need? Well, you know, if I take this job, I can retire by the time I'm fifty. And I, I think guys are thinking about that, uh, whether they win or lose. So. I think in that sense, it's going to be the biggest upheaval maybe we've ever seen in the offseason. One team you didn't mention, but I know is on your radar because you've written about it a little bit, is Nebraska. Um, yeah. And and I guess you, you and your take is that maybe Scott Frost, who's going to obviously be a name that's hot with that program, maybe should hold off, resist a little bit if that does come up. Um, what's your take on Nebraska? What's your take on Scott Frost right now yeah. in his position? I think I think he could, I think he should hold off. I don't think he will. I think right. if offered, he'll take it. Um, you know, everybody went crazy when when UCF beat Maryland, and, and it was a big win. I think it was their. I'm trying to remember the last time they. Well, it was their first uh, Power Five win since the Fiesta Bowl, in third in the 14 Fiesta Bowl. Um, but as I, I, I made a point in one of my notes this week, for a guy like he's 42, I believe. If he goes to Nebraska from UCF and fails, what what's there for him? He would have failed. He would have left before he established himself at UCF. He would have failed at a, at a middling power five. Would he get another job? Yeah, but I don't think he'd ever get a Nebraska-level job again. My point is stay at UCF until you win something, maybe a championship, maybe go to a major bowl, American Athletic Conference championship, and at least you've got that to fall back on your resume if things don't work out at Nebraska, um, that you're a championship coach, and so you will bounce back somewhere. I'm sure a lot of these guys don't think about it that way. Uh, I'm sure Scott Frost is thinking, I'm the guy that can turn around Nebraska. I don't know if there is a person that can turn around Nebraska, and what does turning around Nebraska at this point even mean? You know? Getting to Big Ten championship games? I think, I think, I think that's it. 
it's not winning three championships in four years. I I, yeah, I keep coming to the to back to the question: Why the heck does why the heck is uh, is Wisconsin winning every year? Wisconsin is in a state capital. It's in a sparsely populated state. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Same as Lincoln, and they've yeah. played for four of the last six Big Ten titles. Name me a school beyond Alabama that's done that, and, and that that's as much of a credit to Wisconsin, that's also an indictment of Nebraska. So that's why I asked the question, how good can they be? And Wisconsin's doing it with, with three different head coaches and exactly. they can't keep their coordinators and, and yeah, they still keep on plugging along. <laughs> that, I, that's, I want to do that story because I, I, I know the answer. I think we know the answer. You know, uh, the godfather, Barry Alvarez, has just kind of kept it together and they, they run the same stuff and even with Gary Anderson being, was he one and done? He was two and done. Two and done. Paul think, Chris yeah. just—you wouldn't—you wouldn't know Paul Chris if he was walking down the street. Most fans, but he—he's—he's he oh, sure now. What is now a perennial top ten program? It's all in the family, though, especially with Jim Leonard as your defensive coordinator. Yep. You know, yep. Nothing, nothing but yep. a family, uh, family operation. And hasn't Rudolph been with Chris for a long time? Yeah, the OC there. Uh, let, Leonard Leonard comes in cold from the NFL, I think, right? Um, yeah, he's like, well, he, def- yeah, he was a DB coach, what, for one year, yeah. and then jumped right into D coordinator. Yeah. yeah. Why Why does that work? And I'm just rhetorically saying this. Why does that work at at Nebraska, uh, at Wisconsin, and that's an epic fail at anybody anywhere else? It's it's yeah. Wisconsin. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Uh, do you think Clemson gets tripped up in Lane Stadium on Saturday night? I don't. Um, I think it's going to be really close, but I think to put this on Josh Jackson is going to be hard. It's going to be incredibly intimidating. But you know what's inc- what else is incredibly intimidating? That Clemson defense. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I mean, it really looks like a 16-13 game to me, something like that. Uh, if they do, then kind of everything's changed for the moment in the ACC because. Uh, I I think this is this might be Clemson's last tough their toughest game left. Put it that way. I agree with that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean FSU is at home without a quarterback, so if they get past this, you know, might be time to uh, check them in for a for a playoff berth. So, and I think in some sort of way that's being couched this week at Clemson. So I, I think they'll be ready. All right, he is Dennis Dodd. You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis Dodd CBS. Dodd Father, thank you so much. We appreciate the time. All right, thanks, guys.